Rodney, I appreciate you praying for Jenny and Sarah and the heavy load that they carry as pastor's wives, particularly the loads called Philip and Sam. Uh, Open your Bibles with me to Acts 16. Our our text this morning is Acts 16, verses 11 through 15. But as we come to listen to God's Word and hear it preached, let's pray and ask for God's help to understand what He says to us. Let's pray. Living God, help us to so hear Your Holy Word that we may truly understand, that understanding we may believe, and believing we may follow in all faithfulness and obedience, seeking your honor and glory in all that we do. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Acts 16, verses 11 through 15. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Kids, y'all come up and join me. Welcome. Good to see y'all. Hey. All right. All right, guys. So when your parents give you a great gift, I mean a really, really good one, how many of you want to just put it down and not play with it? Does that sound right? How many of you want to just set that fantastic gift aside and, and maybe use it later? No? What, what do you want to do, Wyatt? You want to play with it right now, right? I appreciate that. You're a very, very respectable young man. That, that's good. Yeah, but normally when you get a great gift, you really want to use it right away, right? Like Josiah, Josiah gave me this fantastic tumbler for Christmas. Some of you might not think it's so great. Uh, you, you might prefer it was orange or some hor- horrible color like that. But, but I have been using that tumbler ever since he gave it to me. And if you think about it, using the gift that is given is actually part of the gift, right? It's not just the item that's the gift, it's the joy that comes along with it. That's part of what's given. And there's joy not only for the one who received the gift, that's me, but also for the gift giver too. I I think Josiah enjoys the fact that I like his mug. 
Well, something kind of like that is happening in the story that we just read. God gave, God gave a woman named Lydia the gift of salvation. He opened her heart to receive Jesus, to believe in him. And as soon as she believed, as soon as her new life in God's kingdom began, she immediately began wanting to use it by partnering with Paul in ministry. Like, like any good gift, as soon as she got it, she wanted to use it. And she was going to use it by taking care of Paul while he was on his journey. It, you can tell that she was not doing that grudgingly, like, oh, this is something I have to do. It was a pleasure for her to serve. And if there was joy for her using her gift, then you have to know that it pleased God to see her using the new life that he had given her that way. And it's the same for you and me. When God gives you and me the gift of salvation in Jesus, then part of his gift is the enjoyment of that new life through serving God and serving other people. You know, sin, sin makes us only want to serve ourselves, and that is a terrible and even a deadly way to live. But God has rescued us from that old life and instead calls us to serve him and others. He gives us Jesus and, by Jesus' spirit, the ability to live the life of Jesus, a life of service. And, part, and using that gift is actually part of God's gift to you. The good works that we do, the, the ways that we serve, that, that's not about paying God back. It's not about trying to make God love us more. No, doing things like honoring your parents, like you said, Wyatt. If they say, hey, don't open it yet, you don't open it yet. Ah, that, uh, or like Lydia in the story, sharing generously what she has. Those things are actually part of God's gift to you. That's part of the good life. And the more you do it, the more you do it, the more you will find, like any good gift, there's joy in it. There's joy in it. And it's pleasing to God, too, as He watches us serve Him and each other. And because God not only gives us Jesus, but also the life of Jesus for us to enjoy today through serving, that's another reason why we call this good news. Do you believe it? All right. Thanks, y'all. You can go back to your seat. If you're not done so already, you can open your Bibles to Acts chapter 16. Sam said, our text this morning is Acts chapter 16, verses 11 through 15. And right at the heart of this passage is uh, this, this glorious display of God's effective grace. As he, as he opens the heart of Lydia to, to hear and to pay attention to uh, what was spoken by Paul, the good news concerning Jesus Christ. But what we see in this passage is that, that God's powerful grace uh, does not make people passive. It does not leave us with nothing to do. God's grace is, is powerful and effective, but it works uh, together along with uh, the works of his servants. We, we see that in the fact that God's grace here is surrounded both by Paul's effective strategy for taking the gospel to a place where Lydia could hear it, and Lydia's effective faith in response uh, to the gospel that she heard. 
Now, let me just tell you right now, there's no way that I'm talking about all of those this morning. I had delusions of grandeur, but it's not going to happen. And so um, we're going to really focus on that first point this morning, on the idea of, of Paul's effective strategy. But, but at the heart of it all is the idea that, that Paul's effective strategy works together with God's effective grace, which eventually have, brings forth the fruit of an effective faith in the lives of those who hear. So let's, let's look more carefully here uh, at Paul's effective strategy. We know the reason that Paul and his companions decided to go to Macedonia. After being prevented from going uh, into Asia, and then again uh, being prevented from going into Bithynia, Paul uh, had had a vision of a man from Macedonia saying, come over and help us. And as we saw last Sunday, it was after considering this vision that Paul and his companions concluded that God was calling them to preach the gospel there in Macedonia. And so, as Luke says, they immediately sought to go there. They, they went to Troas, they got on a boat, and from, boat, uh, from Troas they sailed across the Aegean Sea uh, to Neapolis. But they didn't stop in Neapolis. From Neapolis they went to Philippi. And that's the question. Why? Why did Paul and his team go on to Philippi? When they landed in Neapolis, they were in Macedonia. They had arrived at their destination. But they didn't begin their ministry there, but rather they continued to go inland a ways until they came to Philippi. And so we're, we're forced to ask why. Why was this their strategy? Now Luke doesn't tell us, and so our answer has to be somewhat speculative. But we're not, we're not completely uh, shooting in the dark here because he gives us a clue. Look again at how Luke describes Philippi there in verse 12. He describes Philippi as a leading city of the district of Macedonia. It was not the capital, and, and neither was it the largest city, but it was a leading city. It was an important city in that region, in that district. And I believe that Luke gives us that description to help us understand why Paul decided to begin his Macedonian ministry there. I mean, think about it. Why begin in a leading city? Why, why begin in, in a place like Philippi? Well, it seems that Paul's decision to begin his Macedonian ministry in Philippi, in this leading city of the district, was an expression of a concern for effectiveness. He was, he was trying to find an effective strategy. Now, ministry leaders today are, are sometimes challenged to ask themselves whether they have been called to be faithful or whether they've been called to be fruitful. This is something of a response to sort of the, the church growth movement of, of the late, latter part of the 20th century. And so people are asked, are you, are you called to be faithful or are you called to be fruitful? That is, are you called to faithfully preach the word and to shepherd God's people or are you called to get results and to, to grow the numbers? Usually, when ministers are challenged to reflect on this question, it is pointed out that, that really all a minister can do is be faithful. That's all he has control of. Like Paul and Apollos, uh, ministers of the gospel can plant and water, but only God can give the growth. And therefore, it is suggested that ministers of the gospel ought not to worry about results. That not ought to be their focus. But instead, they should resolve to be faithful ministers of God's word, and they should leave the results to God. 
And there is something right about that way of thinking. There is something right about acknowledging uh, that, that the results are in God's hands. However, in his book on church planting, Tim Keller points out that the choice between faithfulness and fruitfulness is something of a false dilemma. It's not really a choice that we have to make. Yes, ministers of the gospel must prioritize faithfulness. Faithfulness to the gospel must must be foundational and essential and and non-negotiable. A minister of the gospel who fails to faithfully preach the word of God and, and fails to shepherd God's people with that word, he has failed regardless of the numbers, regardless of how many people he can gather or what his budget happens to be. But this does not mean that ministers of the gospel should be unconcerned with fruitfulness. It does not mean that that ministers of the gospel should, should not think about results. Paul certainly wasn't unconcerned about the results of his ministry. In his first letter to the Corinthians, he writes, Though I am free from all, I have made myself the servant of all. Why? Why did Paul accommodate himself wherever he went? Why? He said, so that I might win more of them. And In his letter to the Romans, he says, I have often intended to come to you. That is, I've often intended to, to go to Rome. Why? In order that I might reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. So clearly, Paul was concerned with fruitfulness. He wanted to save as many as possible. He wanted to reap a harvest in Rome among both the the Gentiles and and everyone else who was living there. And I believe that his decision to begin his Macedonian ministry in Philippi was an expression of that desire to be fruitful. It was a, a strategic decision aimed at fruitfulness. Think about it. First, a city is strategic because of the concentration of people. It simply is where the people are. If Paul wants to reach as many people as possible, it makes sense to begin in a city. That's where he's going to have contact with the most people. That's where he's going to have the most opportunity to to preach his gospel. And not only will he reach the people who live there in the city, but but secondly, a city is strategic because of the centralization of, of commerce and community. You see, not only do the people who live in a city come to the city, but the people who live around the city in the rural villages and and, and communities, the people who live near the city come to the city to do business. They they come to the city to to sell their crops and and to, to buy the things that they need for their daily lives. And so the city is strategic. It's the way not only to reach the most people, but it's also the way to reach out into the communities around the city and to take the gospel as far as you can. And so in the city, you have the opportunity to harvest much fruit. Of course, only God can give the growth. We're not denying that. But in the city, you have the opportunity to be maximally fruitful. And I am convinced that that is why Paul chose to begin his Macedonian ministry in Philippi and why we'll see throughout the rest of the book of Acts that he he follows this same strategy wherever he goes. He he tends to go to the cities. He tends to go to to these cities of import. Not because cities are more important, not because the people in the city are more important, but because strategically it allows him to, it allows his ministry to maximize its fruit. Thus Paul's decision as I said, is a, uh, is a demonstration 
that it is right and that it is good for ministers of the gospel to endeavor to be fruitful as well as faithful. Ministers do not have to choose between the two. They don't have to choose between faithfulness and, and fruitfulness, but rather they should seek to be faithful in the way that is most likely to bear fruit in their particular context. For Paul, that meant going to a leading city of the district as he enters into Macedonia. For Keller, it was something similar. He decided to plant a church in New York City so that he could reach not only New York City, but, but begin to reach the world. And he has, as, he, as that church in New York City has begun to plant churches in other cities and has begun to reach into the communities around those cities. But, Paul, but Keller isn't the only one to notice Paul's strategy. And in fact, it's a strategy that has been employed for a very long time. Many church planters have seen the wisdom of beginning in the city. In fact, I would suggest to you that, that Trinity is here today in large measure because of this strategy. In 1840, First Presbyterian Church was planted in downtown Chattanooga, one of the leading cities of the area. Not the biggest city in Tennessee, but, but a leading city of this area. And so they planted a church right in the middle of downtown, First Presbyterian Church. Church. About 50 years later, one generation later, in 1891, First Presbyterian Church planted Highland Park Presbyterian Church just outside downtown to the east. Then, in 1951, another 60 years later, Highland Park decided that they were going to plant a church, and they planted a church in East Ridge, which goes even farther east across the ridge into a community known as East Ridge and in 1988, East Ridge Presbyterian Church went even farther east, this time northeast, to plant Covenant Presbyterian Church in East Brainerd. And in 1998, Covenant Presbyterian Church went even farther northeast, just following I-75, to plant a church here in Cleveland, to plant Trinity Presbyterian Church. And of course now we are doing the same thing. We are helping the Presbytery. We're not doing it on our own, but we are, we are partners with the Presbytery as they seek to plant a church to our northeast in Athens. And that is just one branch of the family tree of First Presbyterian Church. As, as First Presbyterian started planting churches all over the region because someone had a vision to plant the church there in downtown Chattanooga in order to reach the entire area. And I say all this simply to make the point that it is good, it is right to think about the effectiveness of a strategy when, when choosing how you go, are going to do ministry. It is right for ministers of the gospel to, to consider what will likely prove most fruitful, what will give the greatest return on investment. We don't like that phrase when it comes to ministry. But it's actually proper to, to think about how we can best steward the resources that have been given to us to maximize the gospel effectiveness of our ministry in the area where God has called us. Of course, the results are always in God's hands. Only God can give the growth. But that doesn't mean that ministers should, shouldn't think about growth and, and simply be faithful. Rather, we should seek to be faithful in the way most likely to produce a harvest. And that is true not only at the beginning, not only when you're sort of deciding where you're going to plant the church, but that remains true even after the church is planted. It, 
We're, we're obviously here. This is where God has put us. We are a church in Cleveland, Tennessee, but, but we still ought to think this way. We still ought to think strategically. We still ought to think how we can maximize the fruit of our ministry. And in essence, this is the question that we will be discussing in our town hall meeting in just a few weeks. We have been fasting and praying about the next stage of our ministry. We've been asking God to give us wisdom regarding what he would have us to do with the resources that he has entrusted uh, to us, this this building, but also the the people who, who gather here. How should we use the resources that he has given us to, to bring forth the, the maximal fruit in the place where he has called us? We're going to be asking about the best strategy to reap a harvest here in Cleveland doesn't mean that we're, we aren't absolutely committed to faithfulness. Of course we are. We are absolutely committed to remaining a faithful church, a, a church that faithfully and boldly and clearly preaches and proclaims the word of God and, and shepherds uh, people to follow after Christ. We, we want to be faithful, but we want to be faithful in the way most likely to bear fruit here and now and in the surrounding areas in the years to come, in the decades to come, even in the centuries to come. And so that's first. We, we see Paul's desire for effectiveness in his decision to go to Philippi, but, but we also see Paul's concern for effectiveness there in verse 13. Look again at what, Paul, uh, Luke, what Luke writes. He says, On the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the, woman who, to the women who had come together. Now, most commentators agree that, that Paul went to this place of prayer outside the city by the, by the river because there wasn't a synagogue yet in Philippi. You can, you can think of this place of prayer as a, as a prayer meeting that would become the core group of a, an eventual church plan. That's, that's kind of what's going on here. And we, we think that because of what Luke says. Luke says that, that Paul addresses the women who had gathered. It seems that there are only women at this place of prayer. And in that time, it took ten men to start a synagogue. And so they don't yet have what is required to, to start a synagogue there in Philippi, but yet there are, the, there are still these, these faithful Jews who are, who are gathering together for prayer. Not only Jews, but also God-fearers uh, who also wanted to honor the Lord. And they're gathering for, for prayer. And this, this gathering place sort of fills the gap until there'll be enough people, enough men, to start a synagogue. And when we recognize that, we recognize that that Paul is here following the same strategy that we've seen many times before. Paul regularly goes to the synagogue first when he begins ministry in a new city. Now why? Why do that? Why go to the synagogue? Especially considering the the track record of the uh, opposition that he has encountered in synagogues. Well, again, there's not a simple answer to that question, but I think at least in part, we can say that despite the opposition that Paul knows he will face, Paul also knows that in the synagogue, he will be able to engage people who are eager to hear about the Messiah. He will engage people who are actually eagerly awaiting the Messiah. And so he will have a chance to proclaim the good news of the Christ to people who are waiting for the Christ. They don't yet know that the Christ is Jesus, and that's what he gets to tell them. The Christ who you're waiting for, the long-expected Savior, has come. And he was crucified, and he rose again in Jerusalem. And now you can have new life in and through him. That's what Paul is doing. He, He is going to the place where he knows he will encounter people who are waiting 
to hear about the arrival of the Messiah. Yes, he also will encounter resistance. Yes, he will also encounter opposition. He knows that. But he knows that he will also encounter people whom God has prepared to hear the message of good news that he is bringing. One pastor calls this harvesting ripe fruit or, or red apples. He acknowledges that there are some people who are called to engage with the green apples. There are, there are some people whose job it is to, to engage with the maximally resistant and to, and to, uh, you know, to have the, those conversations. But he suggests that for the most part, the outreach ministry of the church and the evangelistic ministries of its members should focus on red apples should focus on ripe fruit. It should focus on people whom God has, repaired, has prepared to respond positively to the proclamation of the gospel. And so what does that mean? How, how does a church actually do that? How do you actually do that? How do you, how do you search out red apples? How do, you, how do you search out ripe fruit? I would suggest to you that you do it simply by listening. Simply by by listening. Searching out ripe fruit means being ready to point people to Jesus as the reason for your hope when they ask. Outreach does not have to look like trapping a person on their, their front porch or in the, the, the seat next to you on the airplane to listen to a gospel presentation they have no interest in. That's what we think of when we think of evangelism. That's why for so many of us, it's like, I don't think I want to do that. <laughs> you know, because it's about forcing a message on people that, that they don't really want to hear. It doesn't seem very loving. It doesn't seem very golden rulish. You know, why would we do it that way? But it doesn't have to be that. Sharing the gospel can be as simple as pointing people to Jesus as the reason for your hope. After you listen to their stories, after you, after you listen to uh, them describe their, their present reality, stories that often include hurt and hardship and frustration, you can point them to Christ as the reason for your hope when they ask. Now, I know you may be sitting there and thinking, well, no one's ever actually asked me that. No, one, no one's ever actually said, would you, would you tell me the reason for your hope? And, and very rarely does, does the question come in that exact way. But as you've heard me say before, you are asked the reason for your hope far more often than you realize. When someone tells you about their grief, when someone tells you about their anger or their frustration, when someone tells you about their aimlessness and, and lack of purpose, when, when someone tells you about their powerlessness against the, uh, the baser uh, realities of their nature, when, when people describe their struggles of life in this present evil age, they are asking you the reason for your hope, whether they know it or not. In such conversations, you have the opportunity to weep with those who weep, to acknowledge before them that you too know what it's like to live in this present evil age. You know the despair and the frustration and the, the powerlessness of, of, of life under God's curse. But more than that, you also have the opportunity to point them to Jesus as the source of your hope. You have the opportunity to, to, to point them to him as the one in whom you found purpose. You, you are no longer aimless because you are a service of the king. You, you have found power in him, power to, to put off that which belongs to the, uh, the, your earthly nature. You, you have found in him joy and contentment, even in the midst of your poverty and want. He is the source of your hope, and you have the opportunity to confess him before those who, who are willing to share with you their struggles. 
And having pointed them to Jesus as the source of your hope, you can then invite them to come and, and to hear more about him. You don't, you don't have to be the evangelist. You don't, you don't have to be the one who, who, who does all the work. You can simply bring them with you to, to people who are gifted to have those conversations. You can bring them to a worship service or a Wednesday night study. You can bring them to a small group or to a, a Bible study that meets during the week or a prayer meeting. You can even just have lunch with them and, and invite Sam or I or one of the other elders to, to join you and to, to tell them more about this Jesus who is the source and fountain of your hope. You see, concern for effectiveness was not the only reason that Paul went to the synagogue, but it certainly was one reason. And I think we should similarly be concerned about effectiveness. We should similarly be seeking out opportunities to share the gospel with those whom God has prepared to hear it. We should be listening to our neighbors, listening to our co-workers, listening to them as they ask about the reason for our hope, even when they don't know it. And one way we, we can do that, one way that we can respond to, to those stories is simply by saying, come, come learn more about this Jesus. Come learn more about this Jesus who rescued me from that same pit. Because he is the only one who can offer them true hope. He is the only one who can do for them what their heart longs for. For he is the only one who took this curse that we all live under upon himself. He became a curse for us that he might rescue us from the curse. He became a curse for us so that we might instead know his blessing. That's what this table is all about. This is about Jesus' body broken. This is about his blood poured out for us. He gave his life as the ransom price for our redemption. He died in our place that we might have new life in him. That is the hope of the world. That is the only hope for those who are living under the misery and the despair of life in this present evil age. And so when you hear your neighbors talking about that brokenness, when you hear your neighbor talking about those frustrations, talking about that hardship, you have an opportunity. You have an opportunity to harvest ripe fruit. You have an opportunity to share the hope of the gospel with those who know they need it, even if they don't yet know his name is Jesus. People just like those women gathered at that place of prayer beyond the river. May we all seek out opportunities to share the gospel with those whom God has prepared to hear it because we are called not only to be faithful, but we are called to be faithful in the way that will most likely bear fruit. That's what Paul's doing here. And yes, as we'll see next Sunday, obviously it's, it's only God uh, who, who can give the growth that our hearts long to see. But God in his mysterious wisdom has ordained to work through us and because he has chosen to work through us, we should be strategic in the way that we work. We should make ourselves the, the best tools for the job by being wise in what we choose to do. Because here we see Paul being strategic, and we should, we should copy him in that so that we too, like Paul, can bring in a harvest of righteousness to the praise of the glory of our Savior. And because God will give that harvest, that's one reason we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let's believe it together. Father God, we come before you humbly asking that you, would, that you would be with us as we seek to be ministers of your gospel. Yes, Father, we ask that you would keep us faithful. Father, we ask that we would, would proclaim your gospel clearly 
and boldly and without compromise. But Father, we pray also that you would open our eyes to see those those strategies, those ways uh, that will bear the most fruit. Father, may we be a church that reaps a harvest to the praise of your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.